to episode 25 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your sober as a judge host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. It is time for our two-parter for season two. This will be episode 23 and episode 24, Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u. I know last season I ended up cramming a two-parter in with another episode. I'm not going to do that this time, just the way everything came out. I can do this two-parter alone, and I'm going to try to endeavor to do that more often. Depending on how the schedule works out, I'm not always going to be able to, but I want to keep the two parts together, and sometimes that means cramming a third episode in there with it. Also, minor trigger warning, we're dealing with three dead cows. They actually do show at least one of the dead cows because they show the skin legions and stuff. So if you watch this episode, and I am going to have a minor discussion about it at the very beginning of my discussion of the episode, just brace yourself, minor animal death happening, just in case you're sensitive to that sort of thing. So, let's go to Hawaii. Chicken skin. You ever see anything like that? No smell. No flies. as a rock. As if it's petrified. I was raised on a farm, but I never saw anything like this before. What is he talking about? Because the army did it with their experiments. What experiments? He says, two years ago, right here, Martin Tung's sheep herd was wiped out by some kind of nerve gas. The army paid him for it, swore they would never allow it to happen again. Look, look, even the bugs are detouring. You tell him that the state of Hawaii will pay for his cows, but no further discussion till we find out what's going on. Kono, seal off and quarantine this area, then get a uh, refrigerated truck out here. Have the lab boys go over it. Make sure it's sterile, germ-proof, and airtight. Then call the county morgue, tell Doc to stand by. Right, Steve. Season 2, Episodes 23 and 24, Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u. Part 1 aired on February 25th, 1970. Part 2 aired on March 4th, 1970. Directed by Marvin J. Chomsky. This is one and two of three for him. Story by Leonard Freeman, our creator. And teleplay by Anthony Lawrence. This will be four and five of nine for him. The 76th Battalion allows farmers to graze their cattle on their land, and they've got some complaints. Mainly that three of the farmers' cows are now dead from what they're sure are army experiments. After all, they did it before, testing nerve gas on some unsuspecting sheep. 5 was investigating because this wasn't nerve gas that killed these cows. In fact, Steve has no idea what it could be. He's never seen anything like it. He orders the area quarantined and the cows taken to be examined. 
At the morgue, a vet, a disease specialist, and a coroner walk into a hallway and tell Steve what they've found. It's a bacteria they've never encountered before. An army lieutenant and his men come to collect the cows, but Steve shoots down his balloon. The deaths might have occurred on army land, but these cows were civilians. That makes this Steve's jurisdiction. The lieutenant insists, and Steve continues to ruin his day. When the lieutenant threatens to tell Colonel Sindel about his lack of cooperation, Steve says he'll save him the trouble. Steve talks to Sindel, asking him what the Army's interest is in the cows, considering Sindel insists this isn't a big deal and there's no need for 5-0 not to turn over the cattle. When Steve proposes that the Army might be looking for an angle to cover up, Sindel swears that's not it. The Army isn't behind this. Government agent Jonathan Kay and Dr. Benjamin arrive in Honolulu and meet with the governor and Steve at the governor's office. Kay explains that everything they're about to discuss is very classified. He asks Steve to describe the dead cows, which he does. They were hard as rock, showed signs of skin legions, but had no smell of decay or anything else. This is what Kay and Benjamin were expecting. Kay goes on to explain the nature of biological warfare and the father of this particular Q strain, Dr. Alexander Klein. A brilliant scientist, in his pursuit of finding a one-and-done vaccine for all ailments, he ended up creating a bacteria strain that could kill all life. Kay convinced him to work for the Department of Defense, perfecting it for rapid reproduction, and so it could be aerosolized, only to have the strain of being the harbinger of death weigh too heavily on Klein. He began to subconsciously sabotage the project so it wouldn't be completed. At the advice of a psychiatrist, Klein was removed from the project and absolved of any responsibility. Not long after, he disappeared and he's been missing for about a year. The dead cows indicate that he has replicated his formula. Meanwhile, the man in question, Alexander Klein, is hanging out on the rocks, chilling with the tidal pool life, when he's discovered by telephone operator Wanda Russell, who takes an instant shine to him. They talk of seed life for a bit before Klein wanders off sadly. Steve puts out an APB on Klein, warning officers not to approach him. He's to be put under surveillance and contact 5-0, who will take over. The team brainstorms where Klein might be working. He couldn't be cooking up this bacteria in his kitchen like some hometown meth. He has to have access to a lab. At his lab, Klein tries to make a call to his friend Abel Morgan, but the call won't go through. When he asks the operator to attempt to make the call, which still doesn't go through due to trouble on the line, the operator, Wanda Russell, recognizes Klein's voice as the man from the beach and hits on him a little bit. This flusters Klein and he hangs up. He packs up his test tube of deadly bacteria in a bag and goes to see Abel, who's a blind artist. Klein despairs over the state of the world and Abel commiserates in his wise way. Wanda shows up, arranging a meet-cute by using the phone number Klein had given her. Klein again gets flustered and leaves. Wanda follows him and finds him in the parking lot, feverish and on the verge of collapse. She takes him home to her apartment. 5-0 finds the lab that Klein has been working at under an assumed name. He's been there about five months and has been rather secretive about his work. Steve wants a team in there to check out the lab. Meanwhile, Danny and Kono go to check out Klein's home address, but there's nothing there and the neighbor doesn't know him. At Wanda's apartment, Klein is on the couch delirious with fever. Wanda, thinking he has malaria, looks through his bag to see if he has any medication for it. She finds the death tube, taking it out of its protective metal sleeve, but doesn't uncork it. She sets it on the table when Klein starts to come too. Wanda gives him a drink and insists that he stay at her place until she gets back from work and she'll bring him some soup. She leaves and Klein finds the death tube on the table. Wanda later comes home to find Klein gone. Dr. Benjamin didn't find anything in the lab that says it definitely had the equipment to make killer germs. They do find one of Abel's carvings, though, and Chin tracks down the artist. 
Steve talks to Abel, who tells him that Klein is dying, a lonely man searching for a peace not found in life. Wanda calls the lab looking for Klein, but Danny answers. When he IDs himself as a police officer and asks Wanda for help in finding Klein, she hangs up. Later, she tracks Klein down to the beach and lets him know that the police are looking for him. Wanda wants to help him, but Klein pushes her away. Literally. She falls off a short cliff into the ocean. Horrified, Klein jumps in after her, rescuing her and taking her to the hospital where someone on the staff recognizes him. Steve and Danny question all of the operators, except for Wanda, who isn't there. Her friend Shirley directs them to Wanda because she was raving about this guy that she met on the beach, and it could be Klein. They head over to her apartment and find the empty metal tube that once held the death tube, but no sign of Klein or Wanda, until the hospital calls. At the hospital, Klein apologizes to Wanda, who will be fine. Klein tells her to leave the mainland, telling her that there's been a biological accident and within 12 hours, everyone will be dead. He makes her promise to leave the island before he exits her room. A doctor attempts to stop him, but he makes a run for it. Due to his poor health, he doesn't make it very far before Steve captures him. Confined to a bed in the hospital, Jonathan Kay, Dr. Benjamin, and Colonel Sindel attempt to get Klein to tell them where he's hidden the death tube, but he's prepared to take that secret to the grave. This doesn't go over well. Colonel Sindel is fully prepared to beat the truth out of Klein because his wife has just had surgery and can't be moved, so he wouldn't be able to flee the mainland even if he wanted to. Ah, the smell of desperation when those living by the sword are about to die by it. Part two begins with Steve and Danny coming to visit Klein, who's still infuriating Kay, Benjamin, and Sindel, who really wants to beat the living hell out of him. Steve tries to reason with Klein, but he's convinced that wiping out the population of Hawaii is the only way to stop the development of biological weapons. Kay assures Klein that bioweapons can be safeguarded against mistakes, but Klein points to himself as one. Thing! As Steve leaves, Klein mentions Wanda, but then says nothing more. As much as Sindel wants to beat Klein until his head is mushy, Kay says they'll wait for the great mind-bender Dr. Malden. Meanwhile, Steve talks to Wanda about Klein. She's been questioned, but she still doesn't understand what's going on, so Steve explains it to her. He hopes that Wanda might be able to convince Klein there's a better way to make his point. Wanda goes to Klein and tries, but she falls apart, pleading with him not to do it. He just screams for her to get out. Dr. Malden arrives. Klein is restrained and injected with a relaxer of some kind. Once it takes hold, Dr. Malden begins talking to him, first telling him that his mother is outside and she wants to see him. After a pause, he pretends to be Klein's mother, attempting to coax the information out of him by telling him that to be a good boy, he has to tell her where his death tube is. But Klein resists, screaming that his mother is dead. Malden sends his mother away, calming Klein down, and then tries a different tactic, with Klein resisting all the way. In the end, Malden mostly fails, finding out only that Klein hid the death tube under a pier, which Oahu has no shortage of. Steve sends Dano on the search, but also comes up with a risky plan now that they're out of options. Let Klein go. If they let him go, leave him alone, he might lead them to the death tube. Kay objects, but Steve thinks he has the manpower to prevent losing Klein. He also points out that Klein has been driven to the point of a breakdown. Leaving him alone might bring him to his senses. Jen follows Klein and then Kono picks him up. Klein goes to see Abel and finds him on his cot in the back of the shack. He tells Klein that Wanda warned him to leave, but he's fine with staying. Klein asks Abel what to do. Abel tells him to stop thinking with his mind and start feeling with his heart. It appears that's what he does. Klein goes to see Wanda. She doesn't understand why he's doing this. He tries to explain by talking about his beehive and how what he's doing is for the hive. 
but it still doesn't make any sense to her. Klein helps her carry her things down to her car, driving her to the dock where she'll be escaping with some friends on a boat. Steve and Danny follow them, Steve checking in with Kono to see if they found anything at Abel's. They didn't. At the dock, one of Wanda's friends recognizes Klein as someone the police are looking for. Wanda tries to lie for him, but Klein tells the truth. It doesn't go over well. Wanda's friend lives Sindel's dream and starts beating the hell out of Klein, forcing Steve and Danny to intervene. Klein begs Wanda to get on the boat. She refuses. She can't leave him. She's in love with him. Realizing what it means, Klein has no choice. To save Wanda, he takes Steve and Danny to the pier the death tube is hidden under. But the tube is gone. First things first, I just want to get this out of the way. Yes, the title of the two-parter is Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u. We are dealing with dead animals here. Here's the thing. It happens at the very beginning of the episode, obviously, and we only see one of the dead cows. And we see it up close because whatever this Q-strain is, it leaves skin legions on the victims. And we have to see that. Normally, what I am accustomed to with dead animals in movies and television is... They are the fakest looking things I have ever seen. <laughs> I frequently say that it looks like someone took grandma's old fur coat and ruined it with some nail polish. That is not the case in this particular episode. When I first watched it to prep for the podcast, the first time I watched it, I'm like, I was looking at thinking, wow, that, that cow looks really kind of real and it did not get any better upon the second viewing. So I checked in with the book I have, Booking Hawaii Five-O, it's by Karen Rhodes, because it sometimes has little bits of background and information with the episode guide. I was looking to see if they'd used actual dead cattle for this episode, and I think they did, because what she says is... And this is a, a line directly from the book. Creating the hideously bloated and mottled cows was the job of makeup man Keister Sweeney, who spent an entire morning, according to Cecil Smith, painting ulcerous sores and venomous pink splotches on the carcasses. This suggests to me that they possibly obtained these already deceased cattle for this particular shoot. If they did, okay, that's been done before in movies. I know it happened in Jaws. They acquired a dead tiger shark, one that was already dead, not killed for the filming. And it was kind of a terrible idea because guess what? Dead things smell. So if they did use carcasses, actual dead cattle for this particular scene, bless them because I can only imagine the smell. I don't know how they would have gotten them, but I am positive that they did not kill a cow for this episode. So that's just my observations on the whole thing and my little bit of warning. If you are going to watch this episode, yes, it does deal with dead animals and we do see them briefly at the beginning of the episode, so brace yourself. Moving on to bigger and better things. As two-parters go, I actually quite like the way this one is set up because the entire first episode, the goal is finding Alexander Klein. The entire second episode, the goal is finding the death tube. And because it is a two-parter, we have ample amount of time to not only build the tension of the impending doom of the entire state of Hawaii, but also we get to see the development of the relationship of Alexander Klein and Wanda Russell. So much of the episode kind of hinges on that because 
Alexander Klein is not a typical villain. He is not doing this for profit. He is not doing this for any kind of power grab. He's not doing this for any kind of gain. He's doing it to make a point. And his motivation is actually quite the mystery throughout the first episode. It's not until the very end of the first episode that he explains why he's doing what he's doing and why he won't tell anyone where the death tube is. He's making a very powerful point in that biological warfare is bad and you won't believe me until I show you. I don't expect you to understand. Alex, there must be some words that can reach you. Words are useless, don't you see? That's the whole point. People have used words. Holocaust. Global destruction. They've talked till they're blue in the face and nothing is accomplished. But what can you possibly hope to accomplish? I've told you. Shock therapy. So he's not a typical villain. And it's only up until you get to that point that you understand why he spent so much of the first episode, and parts of the second episode as well, pushing Wanda away and not wanting to get involved with her. He doesn't want to get involved with her because of he knows what he's doing. There is no need to form attachments to people when you're going to wipe them out. But he kind of finds himself taken with her anyway. And so it's a real struggle. He's having a major interior conflict here happening and it manifests by him pushing Wanda away. But Wanda is rather persistent and won't allow herself to be necessarily completely pushed away. So while we have this whole thing of impending doom, we also have this more personal struggle happening. It's a nicely layered plot that obviously would not be able to be done effectively in a single episode. So as two-parters go, I think they really did use their time wisely. We have the impending doom happening, but we also have this sort of tragic romance happening as well. Also, because Alexander Klein is not your typical villain, he's really not a villain. He's quite sympathetic, and they work very hard to make people understand where he's coming from, even if they don't agree with it. So in this episode, actually what you have, the villain, if you will, the real bad guy that you have, comes in the form of Jonathan Kay, whom we saw in the pilot episode. Then he was played by James Gregory. In this episode, he's played by Joseph Sirola. And I think he basically plays him for the rest of the series. Don't quote me 100%, but I know all of his appearances on Hawaii Five-0, and I think there's five in total, if you include the two-parter. He appears as Jonathan Kay. But Jonathan Kay is kind of the villain here because he's representing the government. And it's very interesting to me because this show is, it's a cop show, it's a cop drama, so it's copaganda. They obviously very much so promote law and order and the system and that sort of thing. But it's very interesting to see the flaws that they point out and the stands that they take. In the first season, The Box is very much a statement on prison reform. All the King's Horses discuss how you know if someone has paid their debt to society. When a person serves their term and gets out of prison, are they reformed? How do you tell? Why does society keep punishing them? In this episode, the stand they're taking is against biological warfare. They're, they're taking a stand against the government's tendency towards a lack of transparency by calling out the army on previous tests and accidents that they have had with their biological testing including the sheep. There was a herd of sheep wiped out at the 72nd Battalion with nerve gas and the army paid for it. They also talk about one incident, I think they said in Utah, which the army denied for like 14 months, I think is what Steve said. 
So the, the army has a history of this sort of bullshit. And also calling out the government, particularly in the, in the governor's office, when Jonathan Kay is explaining what biological warfare is and making a point that we spend billions of dollars on this sort of defense, and he calls it a necessary deterrent. You people frighten me. Necessary deterrent power, McGarrett. War would be impractical, profitless. There would be no victor. There'd be an awful lot of losers. The dude literally says that there would be no profit in war. So that's a very interesting statement for a show to have, especially a police show to have in 1970, pointing out that war isn't always about what's right and what's wrong and liberation. It's about profit. People make money off of war. That's why we have it so often and why it goes on for so long. So Jonathan Kay and Colonel Sindel and Dr. Benjamin are all the personification of these evils of, of the government and the military and the bullshit that they pull at the expense of the public. And the thing is, is that when it starts out, when Jonathan Kay and, and Dr. Benjamin and Colonel Sindel, we first meet them, they all seem very reasonable. Colonel Sindel seems a little shady because he sends his lieutenant to go fetch them cows and Steve won't give them up because they're civilians and I love the idea of civilian cows. That's the sort of thing that just makes me happy. But you know Sindel's a little bit shady. But Jonathan Kay and Dr. Benjamin start out very reasonable. They present themselves as this is a very logical step in our country's defense. They make it very clear this is all about defending our country. So you have to have deadly germs to do that. Necessary deterrence, as Kay says. But for the most part, it seems that they're very reasonable. The villainy is, is subtle, and that's usually what happens with governments and corporations and entities such as this. The villainy is very subtle. It seems reasonable to want to defend your country. It seems reasonable that you would a, acquire a man who is brilliant and accidentally created this key strain and then have him come work for you and develop it into a weapon. And of course you would have this brilliant man removed from the program because of his psychological issues, uh, unconsciously sabotaging it, you needed to be finished, of course you would remove him from the project. All of it sounds completely reasonable because it's being said by men in ties. If you got Victor Buono wearing a fabulous hat to say all of this stuff, you would go, holy shit, that's a bad guy but you don't get that immediate vibe here. It ends up coming across as the necessary evil, which is very much what it's supposed to be. Then later, things step up. So we're like 20 minutes in before 5.0 even begins their search for Alexander Klein. We have a lot of background to go through. So. And the motive is in question. They have no idea why Alexander Klein is doing any of this. So they're treating him as very, very dangerous, which makes sense. He's carrying around a germ that can wipe out humanity. I would treat him with kid gloves as well, especially when you don't know his intentions. So they do very logical things. They have A, they've got their officers on the lookout for him. Do not approach. Let us know. We will keep him under surveillance. And B, they go looking for labs that Klein could have worked in to create this. Because obviously, not cooking this shit up in the kitchen sink, they end up tracking down the lab. Which, I don't know how many medical labs there could have been on Oahu, so I imagine it was a pretty short search. The guy in charge of that lab recognizes Alexander Klein as a guy named Arnold Clay. He's been there about five months, and they ask him what he's working on, and the guy doesn't know. You just let anybody science in your lab and don't, like, question what they're sciencing? What's, what, what forms do you have to fill out for this? Like, you, I would think I would like to know what people are sciencing in my lab. 
because it could be something like, I don't know, a Q strain of bacteria that could wipe out humanity. I know they could lie, but I would still have a better answer to that question when the police came knocking than, well, I don't know. He never talked much about his work. He was very secretive. You'd think that would be a clue. He was up to no good. But I guess scientists are a different sort. Anyway, I found it very clever that they do find a carving of Abel's in Klein's lab. They use that to figure out who the artist is and that gets them to Abel. And Abel can't give them a whole lot of information. But it's very clever detective work. They're trying. And really what it comes down to when they do finally get a hold of Klein, it is because of the flyers that have been circulated It's because of community involvement, really. And I think that's something else that is kind of interesting when it comes to to police shows. It happens a lot in Hawaii Five-O that somebody called it in, somebody saw him. We have witnesses, we have have concerned citizens taking things to the police. It's a very subtle way of showing community cooperation with them. And it's also true to, to police work, I mean, how often that... You can be looking because they go to the address and it's fake and they go to Abel, but he's really kind of a dead end. And so they're doing their police work, but the breaks come from places that they're not even looking. And you can call that convenient plot devices, but it actually makes sense. So that tip-off gets them to the hospital where they're able to chase Klein down and thanks to his unfortunate health, which I know... Wanda suggests that it's malaria and Klein goes along with that, but I don't know if it's actually malaria or if maybe this is just a side effect from working with death germs most of your life. I question what his health really is, especially since Abel says at one point that Klein's dying. You don't know if that's literal or metaphorical, but there's definitely something sickly about the man. I just don't know if it's actually malaria or not. But it's his ill health that helps Steve and Danny catch him because he was out of breath in no time, which is basically what I would look like if I were trying to run any sort of distance. And he doesn't have the death tube on him, obviously. And they take him back into the hospital. And then we get to see the necessary evil lose the necessary part because they literally psychologically torture this man for information. And it's horrifying. They drug him up and Dr. Malden does his thing. And Dr. Malden is an older, very gaunt looking man. He has a sinister appearance. He has resting crypt face. And so the effect is really chilling. Alex, I just talked to your mother. Your mother, Alex. Mother? Yes, she's just outside. And she wants to see you. To talk to you. Doctor. I'll bring her in. She'll be so happy to see you. Alex. Alex, baby. Hmm? Are you all right? Mom, are you doing what your teachers tell you? Mom, Mom, they won't. I want you to remember, Alex, what they say about you. That you are something special. Something very special. I want you to listen to me, son. I want you to listen. 
listen to your mother and be a good boy. I know that you made something for them in the laboratory. You made something in one of those vials. No? Yes, you did. You made it for them, but you won't tell them where it is. No. Not mom. Yes. Yes, Alex, it's mom. I'm right here with you. Dead. Dead. No, dead. No. No, sweetheart. I'm not dead. I'm right here. Listen to me. I'm right here with you, and I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me, Alex. God, go away. You're dead. You're dead. I buried you. You're dead. I buried you. I buried you. Go away. She's gone. And you can't see her anymore. But we are going on a little trip now. A little journey through time and space into the very depths of your mind. No. Through all the Stop it. corners. Stop. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I give the actor credit. He does a wonderful job of it. And Ed Flanders does an amazing job portraying the distress and the resistance that Klein is going through. In the end, they only get that he has hidden the death tube under a pier. They mention that they had previously, before they got Dr. Molden in here to do his mind bending, they had previously tried coercion threats and sodium pentothal, which was very popular back in the day as a quote-unquote truth serum. It was also used as an anesthesia. But the thing is, is that when people would be put under uh, sodium pentothal, they had a tendency when they were coming out of it to babble and say things. And so they kind of used it as a truth serum. You get somebody in a situation where their defenses are down because their brain is currently circling their head and they tend to spill beans. But due to Klein's genius, he was able to resist that. And for the most part, he was able to resist Dr. Molden's mind bending and only giving up that one small piece of information. But they literally torture this man. And still, at one point, Sindel offers to go beat the truth out of this man. So we go from, yeah, they're a little shady, but this is all for the country's events, to holy shit, this is straight up villainy. Like, we're not even disguising this anymore. And even though Sindel says that this is a war, that Klein is the enemy, that he's going to murder all of these people, even when you put it in that context, it's still torture and holy shit, they're still bad people. And Steve recognizes that and kind of calls them out on it, not necessarily overtly, but he's the one that comes up with the plan of, hey, you have pushed Klein to the absolute brink. He's on the verge of a breakdown. What if we didn't? What if we all left him alone for a minute, let him get his shit together, and maybe he will come to his senses and realize what he's doing is wrong. But even if he doesn't, he might inadvertently lead us to the death tube. Don't you think that's a swell idea? And of course, Jonathan Case says no. He would prefer torture, I suppose. Maybe it's his hobby. I don't know. I don't like this version of Jonathan Kay. The James Gregory version of Jonathan Kay was not nearly this prickish. I'm sorry, Joseph Sorolla. I'm sure you're a very nice man. Anyway, they go through with that idea because really they don't have any other idea aside from letting Colonel Sindel use him as a punching bag. And even then, there's no guarantee he's going to say anything. And it turns out Steve is right. They back off. Klein is able to go talk to his friend Abel. And Abel gives him some very important advice. Abel, what should I do? 
We're shaped by the things that we love. You stop thinking with your mind. Start feeling with your heart. And that kind of turns it for him in a way because he goes to see Wanda and he tries his best to explain to Wanda why he's doing what he's doing. And at that point, he really does feel that this is still necessary. That he doesn't want to do this, but he feels compelled. He feels like he has to. People aren't bees, Alex. No, Wanda. But the person who loves life will answer the same call. He understands the relationship between the living cell and the human body, or the bee to the hive. Now, somehow I've got to do this for the hive. Can't you see that? Will you help me get my things down to the car? And they end up going, of course, to the boat. And Wanda's friend, I don't know if his name was, I can't remember if it was Bob or Bill, I think it was Bob, recognizes Klein and beats the crap out of him. And at the first part of the fight, it doesn't look too serious. He pushes him up against the car and punches him in the stomach. But by the time Steve and Danny get there, he's basically got him like half over the pier, just beating the hell out of him. And you're like, wow, that escalated quickly. And it's after that point when Wanda confesses that she loves him and that's why she can't hate him that's when he has his change of heart. That was the coming to the census moment that Steve was talking about. Unfortunately, he came to his senses a little too late because when they go to the pier where he's hidden his death tube, it's not there anymore. And now they have to go find it, but they have no idea where it could possibly be. The problem is, is that the tube was designed to start leaking because they only have like 12 hours when they first capture him. So they're running out of time. And the tube was designed to start leaking and then like the cork, I guess, will dissolve and it will be released. It'll only live for like six hours in daylight is what he said. But that's long enough. Once it gets airborne, everybody in Hawaii is going to die. So now the race is to find the death tube when they don't know where it is and no one knows where it is. That's when the police work really picks up. And to further illustrate how evil and villainous Jonathan Kay, as his personification of the government is, he tells Steve that he absolutely does not want this death tube destroyed. He wants it taken alive, as it were. Because even though he has like a government facility that's doing this, he has a lab, they just got rid of Alex, they can still make their own. But he wants this kind, he wants this sample. That's just how committed he is to the job. So yeah, we start off thinking that Klein is the evil genius and our government entity is on the right side. And by the time we get to the end, it flips. Actually, I think by the time we get to the end of the first episode, it kind of already has flipped. Because they work very hard on making Alexander Klein to be sympathetic. When they are first discussing biological warfare and the Q-strain that Klein has created. They actually intercut that with scenes of Klein meeting Wanda at the tidal pools. And what you end up seeing is not this man who is an evil genius. You don't see this nefarious guy. You see someone who's actually rather sad and apparently broken. And I think maybe that's why Wanda is so attracted to him at the beginning. Actually, her friend Shirley does say that she's always picking up strays. And he kind of gets you like that, that he's astrayed, that he's broken, that he's lonely. And she's intrigued by him. 
And it's a really cute scene when they first meet. What you got? Fiddler crab. Looks like he lost one of his fiddles. You grow another. Pennsylvania. Pardon? Pennsylvania. Bet you're from Pennsylvania. How'd you know? I'm a telephone operator. I play this little game with myself, trying to guess where people come from, just from their voices. And like I said, this is all intercut with them explaining what Dr. Klein did and biological warfare. So you're already getting the sense that this is not the evil mastermind that perhaps you would expect to be doing something like this. And that's really what the purposes of Wanda and Alexander's relationship is. Because she just chased after him. By coincidence, she's the operator he gets when he's trying to call Abel and can't get through. And yes, you can call that plot device or whatever, but coincidences like that happen in real life. She even mentions that it's a coincidence. Obviously, they keep meeting by coincidence. And you can say that, well, the universe orchestrated them to come together for the express purpose of thwarting Alex's plans. But it really is her persistence in going after him. And she takes care of him when he falls ill. And he's on the couch and he's feverish and he's babbling and it's all about science stuff and she doesn't understand it. She goes through his bag, which has a bunch of like haphazard science shit just thrown in there. My God, sir. I mean, he has a death tube thrown in there with a bunch of other chemicals and they're just literally just haphazardly put into this bag. And it's like, sir, you have the fate of the world in there. Could you, I don't know, organize your shit. But she finds the death tube. She takes it out of the the metal sleeve that it's in and looks at it. And that's when he comes to and she goes over to him. And when he asks, because she said that he was raving in his feverish state and he asks if he said anything and she goes, oh, I couldn't repeat it if I wrote it down. She didn't understand any of it. And he sees that she's gone through his stuff and she's like, oh, I thought you were having a malaria attack. I was looking for the quinine, I think is what it was because most people carry that. And she's like, oh, you're a scientist, aren't you? I mean, he is terrified of being caught and somebody finding that death tube and knowing what he's doing. And then here's Wanda, who's completely innocent, does not suspect him of being anything other than a very intriguing man she met at a tidal pool. And he's very charmed by that, but he can't let himself get attached. So she begs him to stay because he's not feeling well. She just has to run to work and cover for one of the other girls and then she'll be right back and she'll bring him some soup. And he says, okay, I'll stay, but then he doesn't. And she's a little disappointed when she comes home and finds him gone. And even though Wanda doesn't know him very well, when she calls for him at the lab because she's not giving up on this guy, props to her for her persistence because she says she doesn't normally chase after men, but she was obviously hit with the love at first sight and she's not going to let it go. So way to go after your goals, Wanda. Bless you. When she calls for him at the lab and Danny IDs himself as a police officer, her first instinct isn't so much what did Alex do, but how can I protect him? And she hangs up on Danny when Danny starts prodding her about where he might be. And she goes to find him at the tidal pools to warn him that the cops are looking for him. Her first instinct is to protect Alex. Alex's instinct is also to protect Wanda, but he does it in a very ineffectual way because he grabs a hold of her arms and he's shaking her and he's like, you need to leave me alone. Why won't you leave me alone? And he lets go and she falls into the ocean and apparently hits her head a little bit and he immediately regrets what he's done, jumps into the water, fishes her out, takes her to the hospital. 
she's going to be okay. And he goes in and he apologizes to her, which is very sweet. And Wanda, of course, forgives him. And this is how I know I am not Wanda, because I am not exactly forgiving when someone throws me off of a cliff. I'm actually kind of a bitch about it. Not that I've been thrown off of many cliffs, but I cannot imagine I would be in a good mood after this. Even if I really loved that person, I would still probably be pretty pissy. Maybe I would eventually forgive them, but there would definitely be some hell to pay. I'm not a good person. I admit that. But he also, in this moment, tells Wanda a little bit about himself, and his childhood sounds a bit horrific. I grew up like a machine, a human computer. They fed the questions into me, and the answers always came out right. They said a mind like mine comes along only once in a lifetime. So they kept me locked up like some sort of freak. They kept me away from people. I never got to know people. So you kind of get an idea of why Alex is also having trouble relating to Wanda is because he was not taught to relate to people. He's always been very lonely. And then in walks this person who doesn't know him as a genius, doesn't know him as anything other than a man she saw at a tidal pool and is completely in love with him. And it's the first time he's been seen as another person. And it affects him deeply. And it came at the exact wrong time in his life because he's about to wipe out some humanity which is why he warns her to get off the island and why he also pushes her away when they try to use her because obviously you knew that McGarrett and, and company would try to use her to reason with Alex and that's also why he pushes her away in that moment because he's still very committed to his course of action but he does not want her to die. He doesn't want to see her get hurt. He doesn't want her involved in any of this. So it's very clear that he cares about her. So that's why when we get to that moment when she says, I know I don't hate you because he asks her in the hospital, I believe, do you hate me? And she says no. And in her apartment, she's very upset because she should, she says, I should hate you, but I don't. And so when we get to the fight on the dock and she says she won't leave and she goes, now I know I don't hate you. It's because I love you. That's when everything clicks with Alex and he goes from trying to prevent death on a mass scale through biological warfare by giving this hideous example that will kill millions to I have to save this one person because I care about her. So it's a really kind of great moment to watch Alex get to evolve to that point that he goes from the good of the hive to the good of my heart. But unfortunately, this happens at 35 minutes into the second episode. And so you know that there's going to be another twist. And that twist is that the tube is gone and they have to find this death tube. He's at a point where he feels incredibly helpless and incredibly hopeless. Despite Wanda being incredibly optimistic that Fibo will find it, the government will find it. They will be able to fix this. And Alex doesn't really have that kind of a hope. Which is reasonable because they have no idea where to start looking for the tube, but they figure because it was on a pier that maybe a surfer picked it up. That's where they start. And a surfer did pick it up. I would like to question this surfer because this death tube, the contents of this test tube, looks like the only thing I can think of is oatmeal spit. That's what it looks like. It is nasty looking. It is this weird pasty beige color that does not, when you move it, it doesn't move with the tube. It is not necessarily a liquid. It is partially solid. It is nasty looking. This dude found this test tube under a pier and said, I'm going to take this home. Why would you say such a thing? I would say, I'm going to leave this there. This is not for me. I don't know what it is, but it's yuck. But this dude took it home. And 
that's part of the reason why they can't find it. So they're trying to find this surfer. They suspect who would have taken it home because they can't imagine anybody else uh, finding it. I guess where the pier is, they think it's most likely a surfer. I think it's not a spoiler to say that they do find the death tube and they are able to get rid of it, much to Jonathan Kay's dismay. Because, hey, everybody lives in Hawaii and we have an episode next week. So I think it's, it goes without saying that they do manage to find the death tube. And I will say that the ending is rather bittersweet. But, on the other hand, if you like fire, this one's for you. Break out the flamethrower! Also on fire, in a metaphorical sense, is our guest cast, so let's take a quick look at them. Dr. Alexander Klein was played by Ed Flanders. This is his second and third episode of Seven. We previously saw him in the episode Uptight. Wanda Russell was played by Loretta Swit. This is the second and third episodes of Four for her. We previously saw her briefly in the episode A Thousand Pardons, You're Dead. As I said, Jonathan Kay was played by Joseph Sirola. This is the first and second of five episodes for him, all of which he plays Jonathan Kay. He was also Dominic on The Magician, Tony Montefusco on The Montefuscos, and Sal Wolf on Wolf. He also turned up in episodes of The Untouchables, Andy Griffith Show, Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, The Green Hornet, Get Smart, The Man from Uncle, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Rhoda, Mannix, Wonder Woman, The Rockford Files, Charlie's Angels, Quincy, Emmy, The A-Team, Simon and Simon, Silk Stockings, Spin City, Diagnosis Murder, and Rescue Me. He was in the movies Sunday, Love is a Gun, Seizure, Hang Em High, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and Strange Bedfellows. And he was in the TV movies Visions, Cry Rape, High Risk, and Terrible Joe Moran. Abel Morgan was played by Carl Spinson. He was Lars Hansen on Little House on the Prairie. He was also Dr. Kilgren on Cimarron Strip. He also turned up in episodes of Circus Boy, Leave it to Beaver, Sugarfoot, Bachelor Father, Mr. Lucky, The Rifleman, Hawaiian Eye, Maverick, Have Gun, Will Travel, Surfside 6, The Andy Griffith Show, Laramie, 77 Sunset Strip, Wagon Train, Gomer Pyle, Perry Mason, Big Valley, Bonanza, The Virginian, Iron Sign, Gunsmoke, Lassie, Mod Squad, Emergency, Happy Days, and Cannon. He was in the movies Olzana's Raid, Vanishing Point, Tick, 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 Hour of the Gun, The Cincinnati Kid, the Sons of Katie Elder, The Birds, and he was the voice of Merlin in The Sword in the Stone. He was also in the TV movies The Gun in the Pulpit, The New Healers, and The Howling in the Woods. Dr. Benjamin was played by Dana Elkar. He is best known as Pete Thornton on the 1985 MacGyver. He was also Colonel Thomas A. Lard on Black Sheep Squadron, Lieutenant Schiller on Beretta, and he was Sheriff George Patterson on Dark Shadows. He was also in episodes of Car 54, Where Are You? The Defenders, The Virginian, Get Smart, Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, Ironside, Marcus Welby, MD, Bonanza, Alias Smith & Jones, Mannix, Columbo, The Waltons, Cannon, Gemini Man, The Incredible Hulk, One Day at a Time, Benson, Falcon Crest, Voyagers, Hill Street Blues, The A-Team, Trapper John, MD, Matlock, Law & Order, and ER. He was in the movies All of Me, Blue Skies Again, The Nude Bomb, the Champ, Baby Blue Marine, The Sting, Zigzag, Pendulum, The Boston Strangler, and A Lovely Way to Die. And he was in the TV movies The Death of Miette, Hernandez, 
Dine Room Only, Heat Wave, Crisis in Midair, Help Wanted, Mayo, and Quarterback Princess. Colonel Sindel was H.M. Wyant. This is the first and second of three episodes for him. He also turned up in episodes of Peter Gunn, Rawhide, The Twilight Zone, Thriller, Route 66, Hawaiian Eye, 77 Sunset Strip, Wagon Train, Perry Mason, Branded, The Wild Wild West, The Virginian, Big Valley, Ironside, Hogan's Heroes, Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Cannon, SWAT, Gemini Man, The Six Million Dollar Man, Quincy M.E., Super Train, Nero Wolf, Dallas, Days of Our Lives, Airwolf, The 91 Dragnet, and Huff. He was in the movies Dark and Stormy Night, the Big Empty, Hangar 18, Grand Jury, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Marlowe, It Happened at the World's Fair, and Run of the Arrow. And he was in the TV movies The Horror at 37,000 Feet, The Stranger, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, and The Diamond Trap. Dr. Molden was played by Ken Drake. He was Bragan on Not for Hire. He also appeared in 23 episodes of Sea Hunt as various characters. He also turned up in episodes of Highway Patrol, Peter Gunn, Bat Masterson, The Beverly Hillbillies, Twilight Zone, Dr. Kildare, The Man from Uncle, Petticoat Junction, Big Valley, Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Ironside, and Mission Impossible. And he was in the movies The New Interns, Crime and Punishment USA, The Power of the Resurrection, and he had an uncredited role in I Bury the Living. Shirley Harris was played by Lynn Allen Hollinger. This is her first and second of 11 episodes. She also turned up in episodes of Jake and the Fat Man, One West Waikiki, and she was in episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. The Doc was played by Ted Thorpe. This is his fourth and fifth episodes of five. Arthur Sung, who ran the lab, was played by our friend Yankee Chang. This is his fifth of 17 episodes. The HPD officer was played by Bernard Ching. This is his first and second of 15 episodes. He also was in episodes of Barnaby Jones and in the movie Damien's Island. Our director, Marvin J. Chomsky, in addition to three episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also has directing credits for three episodes of The Doctors and the Nurses, five episodes of Maya, 11 episodes of The Wild Wild West, three episodes of Star Trek, three episodes of Then Came Bronson, three episodes of Gunsmoke, three episodes of Name of the Game, four episodes of Mission Impossible, three episodes of Cades County, and two episodes of The Magician. He also has directing credits for the movies Tank, Good Luck Miss Wyckoff, Macintosh and TJ, and Evil Knievel. He also has directing credits for the TV movies Family Flight, Attack on Terror, the FBI vs. the Ku Klux Klan, A Matter of Wife and Death, Danger in Paradise, Hollow Image, Attica, My Body, My Child, I Was a Mail Order Bride, Telling Secrets, and Triumph Over Disaster, the Hurricane Andrew story. And he has directing credits for the miniseries Strauss Dynasty, Brotherhood of the Rose, Holocaust, and Roots. Oh, not on your life. I wouldn't stick my neck out that far for any man. And that is Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u, parts one and two. Really do enjoy this two-parter. Like I said, I think they utilize time really well by having the first part be about finding Alex and the second part being about finding the death tube. I like that they took their time with it and allowed not only the tension to build, but also allowed us to get to know Alex 
and present him as something other than some evil genius hellbent on world domination. They gave him a soul. They actually gave him a noble purpose, even if the execution perhaps wasn't the most relatable because it's really hard to relate to someone who wants to wipe out the entire population of an entire area just to make a point. But they gave him enough soul, and I think Ed Flanders did an absolutely fabulous job, especially when you compare him to the character that he played in Uptight. He was so sympathetic in this episode and so broken and the little bits of hope and happiness that he showed when he was with Wanda. And Loretta Swit was absolutely brilliant as Wanda because she is so sweet and so innocent and so pure and so obviously smitten with this man. You could totally buy her totally falling for Alex in just the span of one conversation. You knew she was genuine. And it was very sweet to watch these two people come together and watch Alex opened up a little bit in the context of him making this huge moral decision that was going to have catastrophic consequences. Absolutely riveting watch. Just so good. You're not going to regret it. Take a tip from your protoplasm and get in a little riotous living. is episode 25 of Bookum Dano. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate your ears and I'm hoping you're having a good time. We're almost done with season two. We've only got one more episode left. Time flies when you're having fun. If you want to have more fun, you can do that by finding me online at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. But if you want to have fun in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So if you do inadvertently make a bacteria strain that could wipe out all of humanity, make sure you know exactly where it is. Until next time, aloha.